0: And I think some of that anger is really what drives a lot of us to continue to do the work that we do, to fight for the patients on the ground who we are sitting with in a, you know, exam room and hearing their stories, um, and then feel it's our responsibility to bring our stories and our training to our legislators to make sure that they understand the direct impact that they're having on their constituents and the citizens of their district, region, state, whatever the case may be.
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. A war on doctors is underway in Republican-led states, and numerous physicians are fleeing for safer ground. Thirteen states have criminalized all abortion care. Over 500 bills have been proposed targeting LGBTQ care, including many that criminalize gender-affirming care. Obstetricians and gynecologists, or OBGYNs, who routinely perform abortions and provide health care to LGBTQ people have been a particular target, facing threats of loss of licensure up to felonies. Idaho is a case in point. Soon after the U.S. Supreme Court passed the Dobbs decision that took away the constitutional right to an abortion, Idaho passed a law that allows certain family members of a patient to sue providers who perform an abortion for at least $20,000 if the procedure breaks the abortion law. Doctors in those cases also face suspension of their medical license, felony charges, and even prison time. As a result, five of the nine maternal fetal medicine specialists in Idaho who deal with high-risk pregnancies will be gone by the end of this year. Several hospitals have closed their maternity units, and 40% of OBGYNs in the state said in a recent survey that they were considering leaving Idaho. As doctors leave, maternity care deserts are expanding, often following the path of anti-abortion laws. According to the March of Dimes, Nearly seven million people who can become pregnant who are of childbearing age now live in a county with either no maternity care services or with limited services. One-third of U.S. counties qualify as a maternity care desert, more than half of them classified as rural, including parts of Vermont. On this Vermont conversation, we speak with physicians on the front lines of providing abortions and gender-affirming care. In the first part of our program, we talk with three physicians at the University of Vermont Medical Center who are midway through their four-year OBGYN residency. Along with caring for their patients, Drs. Mackenzie Delzer, Gnendi Indig, and Sarah McShane have already been to the Vermont State House to testify in defense of reproductive rights. In the second part of the program, we speak with Dr. Lauren McAfee. Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Complex Family Planning at the University of Vermont Larner College of Medicine and the UVM Medical Center. She has been an outspoken advocate for reproductive rights. Becoming a board-certified OBGYN requires at least 12 years of post-secondary education. I began by asking Dr. Sarah McShane to explain the training that she and her fellow residents are doing.
2: It's a long training process. And so for most of us, we went to four plus years of undergraduate medical or undergraduate education, some of us in science fields, some of us not in science fields, um, and graduated from there. And some people go directly into medical school, or some people might take time off where they work a regular job or they're taking postgraduate courses um, in pseudo gap years. And then we go to medical school. And so medical school is another four years of, um, specific medical education. And then you graduate medical school and you, that's when you get your doctorate. And so at that point you are a doctor, but you choose at the end of medical school, how you want to go forward with your training. So you haven't yet done a residency in a specialty that you become board certified in. And so for all of us, we chose to go to OBGYN medical residency and and at the end of our four years of medical residency, then we graduate from residency into being an OBGYN.
1: And as you mentioned, you are already doctors. Um, you're a, as a second-year resident, explain what you do.
2: So we are training physicians. We um, work within the University of Vermont, um, both in clinic and in the OR and on labor and delivery in our postpartum units. We care for patients with the supervision of attending physicians, and that can be anything from taking care of laboring patients to assisting in surgeries in the general OR or carrying our own patients in clinic that we staff with an attending physician.
1: Dr. Indig, what made you decide to choose OBGYN and to choose uh, University of Vermont as the place where you did your residency?
3: Yeah, so I, as Dr. McShane was explaining, some people have taken time off before medical school, and I've worked in patient advocacy perspective for LGBTQI patients. Um, With that, going into medical school, I didn't know what kind of specialty I landed, but being exposed to OB/GYN basically highlighted to me the combination of surgical care, basic medical care primary care and an integral part of um, advocacy in taking care of your patients. You can't really divide obstetrics and gynecology from an advocacy slash activism perspective, and that's what drew me to OBGYN. Um,
1: So that's interesting. When you went to medical school, you were not trained as an advocate and an activist, and yet you find yourself now in a space where in order for you to continue practicing freely, uh, whether it's LGBTQIA health care or reproductive health care, you've had to be an, act, an advocate. Um, Doctor, did explain a little bit about what your advocacy looks like?
3: Yeah, so I think when it comes to taking care of pregnant people or um, people who find themselves pregnant It's not the same thing as treating somebody who comes in with an appendicitis, where somebody comes in with an infection, we treat the infection. There's probably two or three ways to do that, depending if you ask our dentures, colleagues. A lot of what you do in OBGYN is listening to the patients, seeing what their values are, seeing what their desires are, and then working with them to get there. And so A lot of our care is directed based on what our patients want for their bodies, not necessarily what our guidelines have dictated.
1: When you say what your patients want for their bodies versus the guidelines, explain what you mean by that.
3: Let's say we have somebody coming in for their first pregnancy appointment. Within five minutes, that appointment can look incredibly different depending on the answer to the first question of like, how are you feeling about this pregnancy? And that answer could dictate what my next hour looks like or my next half hour looks like
1: which I think is pretty important. Hmm. Um, Dr. Mackenzie Delzer, uh, I wanna, you testified in front of the uh, Vermont legislature. Explain what you came to the state house to talk about.
4: Yeah, um, we had the opportunity and we do this annually with our residency program to go to the state house and interact with our lawmakers Um, and this year we talked about the shield law, um, which was coming up in both the house and the Senate, um, which provides protections for providers who are doing trans healthcare and abortion care. And then we also talked in general about, um, making sure that we have enough providers in our state and that we're giving our patients what they need.
1: When you signed up to be an obgyn you obviously had to go through a very rigorous uh, you know medical training did you expect that advocacy would be a big part of your work
4: i did um, you know i think there are certainly avenues in medicine where advocacy is taking a backseat but i don't think there's any medical specialty where it completely goes away Because at the end of the day, we sit face-to-face with patients who have needs that are not met by the systems that we have in place, and we're the folks who get the inside scoop. And I think it creates the special responsibility for us as physicians to help make systemic changes, to to bring adequate care for everybody. Um, I think OB-GYN specifically is a really unique field in which we get to see a lot of that, Um, but In general, I think it's pretty widespread advocacy in medicine.
1: So let me ask you, as a young physician, and you look out at the landscape of our country, and uh, you've no doubt seen these many color-coded maps with states that are banning and criminalizing abortion care, trans health care. Um, Dr. Delzer, as you think about your future, would you practice in a state? with abortion bans or restrictions?
4: You're asking a very tough question um, because there's lots of internal pulls. Um, You know, I come from Wisconsin and all of my family is there. And there's a huge draw for me to go back and be with my family. But at the same time, that's a place where it's not necessarily safe to practice abortion care right now the way things currently are um, even though the laws don't dictate what the actual needs are of the people who are there and so if I were to go back to a place like that I'd have to get creative in what I do and and how I do it and sort of where I use my medical license um but it certainly makes me think twice and not not run back that direction you know when i'm deciding on what i want my future to look like because at the end of the day i'm also a physician that has a life and a family and i want to care for my family and and have a job and not lose my license and <laughs> you know I, it's it's tough
1: when you say having to be creative in how you do your work what does that mean and what does it look like
4: yeah I mean, you can't break the law, and so you have to comply with the laws that exist, but that doesn't mean that I can't use the education that I have to, for example, moonlight in a different state or work out some way to, you know, help provide information to get my patients to places where they aren't bound by laws that would prohibit them from accessing abortion care, so it just, it takes a little bit more creativity, I guess.
1: Well, let me ask that question to each of you dr sarah mcshane would you practice um ob in a state with abortion bans or restrictions or restrictions on trans health care
2: i mean i think the really interesting crux of this question is that just because a state passes a ban doesn't mean that the patients in that state go away and What I unfortunately think we're gonna see is that more and more providers because they're trained in full spectrum OBGYN care don't want to go to a place that's gonna limit their skills. But the unfortunate thing that's gonna happen in response to that is that then those states are not gonna have as many providers for regular care that isn't restricted. And that makes makes me very sad. And I think there's some part of me that's pulled towards any place that has um, a problem with access to care. And so I have ties to North Carolina and I have a lot of friends in North Carolina and that's a hot place where there's currently legislator trying to pass more more abortion bans. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean I wouldn't practice there. It just means I like Mackenzie said that I would have to think very hard about it, because the other part of the question that is cruxed is that as residencies in red states have more issue getting their residents medical training in abortion care, then there's going to be less graduating residents that are fully skilled in abortion care, which then makes me graduating from Vermont as a fully skilled provider, somebody I feel some moral Um, pull to practice that because there are fewer of us potentially.
1: You have invested an extraordinary amount of time, energy and resources. And you're saying that you would be open to moving to a state where you could be prosecuted as a felon for performing the services that you've trained to do. You would be willing to do that?
2: I think there's an interesting kind of twist in in the question. I think that being in certain states would limit what I'm allowed to do. Right. And so I would have to, if I moved to certain states, then you would have you would have to conform to certain practice boundaries.
1: Would you be willing to put yourself in a situation we are hearing about physicians torn between their oath as a physician to provide care, to provide evidence-based care, and the laws of a state that are requiring physicians to, for example, give information that is not based in science, to not perform uh, certain procedures, whether it's for a miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy or abortion, they they fall under kind of a, you know, in, in the same gray area but you can't practice medicine the way you're practicing in Vermont in these places. That's correct. Why? And and you are open to going to those places though.
3: I,
2: th- I think I'm less open to it. I don't like the idea of needing to practice that way. But what I'm saying is that I feel the pull of patients in those areas and the huge deficits in care that are going to be created. And so... Part of the moral pull is to also be a part of still fulfilling care even despite this horrible legislation
1: well, dr janendi indig uh, let me put that question to you are you would you be open to practicing medicine in states with uh, restrictions or bans on abortion or trans health care
3: um i plan on doing um a subspecialty fellowship after residency and pediatric adolescent gynecology, which part of that involves learning how to provide comprehensive gender-affirming care to adolescents. Um, And so that question is something I struggle a lot with, not so much struggle because I've got the answer for it, but in terms of where to apply, is that if I am continuing my training with the intent of being a comprehensive pediatric adolescent gynecologist, if I go to states with current or ongoing limitations on adolescent healthcare, I will be compromising my training. And so, no, I'm not applying to states that have restrictions on my education because that would not, that would basically limit my education and I've worked really hard to to get here. So I'm not gonna limit myself now.
1: What has drawn you to that subspecialty, which, um, you know, is a, Probably a, a relatively small niche within yes. the world of OBGYN.
3: It is. And I think that ties back to why I chose OBGYN in general um, is that we're dealing with people who are vulnerable and who have sometimes been discriminated or their access to care has been limited, um, and carrying that to the adolescent population, which oftentimes their voices taken away from them, sometimes justifiably, but some adolescents do not have the same legal voice and being able to give them some autonomy in their medical care is what pulls me to it. And so ultimately it's about treating vulnerable disadvantaged populations.
1: Hmm. Um, Let me go back to Dr. Delzer. What concerns you most in terms of health care in terms of reproductive and lgbtqia health care what are your thoughts on that yeah
4: i think what we're seeing across the board is rules and regulations around care that are not being created by the people directly involved in that care i think if you put together patients and providers who work in this field day in and day out, we could give you a bunch of opportunities (laughs) to make rules and regulations that would serve the population. And that's just not what's happening. And that's what scares me is that, you know, we could very well continue making more regulations on things that are only going to further increase disparities in healthcare. And that would be terrible.
1: Did you expect, uh, and this is, uh, again, for you, Dr. Delzer, that your chosen specialty would become the epicenter of a national culture war?
4: No, I don't expect that that would happen. But I'm also not surprised, given the, the history in the way women are treated and given opportunities and valued. Um, And so, you know, again, part of my draw going into this field is to be a physician advocate for these people who have, you know, experienced vulnerable positions in the past.
1: The um, one third of US counties are now what are described as a maternity care desert. Uh, and more than half of them are classified as rural. Uh, Dr. McShane, what are your, why is this happening? You know, what is creating this? And the questions I'm asking are really kind of about how with your generation of physicians, you're confronting an expanding desert because you are having to choose whether to go to places that are a desert, in part because of the criminalization of healthcare?
2: Yeah, that's a big, big question (laughs) and um, complex reasoning. And some of the things that I think we've seen even within Vermont's rural areas, but also where I was training in North Carolina, which also has like central areas that people live in the very rural Appalachian um, towns is the closing of small maternity centers. So the closing of small labor and deliveries and obstetric offices that are closer to people that live in those rural areas. And part of why that's happening is that providers are not feeling as pulled to go to those rural places. And so we have older generation, retired physicians who have potentially been taking 24 hour call every other day and been okay with that. And then we're having a new generation of younger physicians come in who is pushing back on the history of medicine and how people have practiced and becoming more creative in call schedules and in having more of a balanced structure to their life and their work. And it's really hard. It's gonna take multiple physicians to fill one retiring physician in a small rural town if we're bringing in new, um, a new age of, of practitioners and so that's an issue it's also an issue just for compensation reasons to split a uh, one physician salary into multiple um and then it's also just the way that people are living and moving is more focusing towards cities and less towards rural living and so i think we're seeing kind of that the play out of that and then i also think that there's a real hospital level and systems level issue in the compensation of maternal care and that those small labor and delivery units and obstetric offices aren't getting the compensation that they need to stay safely practicing.
1: It sounds like you're giving a lot of thought to practicing in a rural area.
2: I have. Yes.
1: (laughs) Why are you drawn to that?
2: Um, I think all of us have a same theme of being pulled towards the edge of access to care and the places that have some level of needing more access and being part of filling those holes. And I think each of us has kind of taken a different interest and way of looking at it. And I think in med school, I lived in Asheville, North Carolina, and I did a lot of my rotations like an hour or two outside of Asheville in small rural um, offices and small hospitals. and I think you can't meet and work in a population like that and see the differences in the care and the barriers to care and not feel some level of pull towards that.
1: It strikes me that in the context of the issues we're talking about and the controversies that surround it, rural physicians are pretty they're they're alone. They face a lot of, you know, the, The pushback, these rural areas are often more conservative, um, and they may not have, the physicians may not have the protection of a big, you know, academic teaching institution behind it. You may just be out in a rural clinic. Does that concern you as this becomes such a contested area of practice?
2: Yes, definitely. You know, as you go through medical education and you realize more and more that your training continues every year of that you practice beyond residency and you think about graduating residency and where you have always support behind you and making decisions in the OR and caring for women on labor and delivery to go to then being a sole practitioner by yourself is kind of scary. That's a big jump. Um, And being in a larger practice or in in an academic institution, you still have some level of colleagues that are close by when there is a difficult case or an ethical conundrum.
1: What gives you the courage and commitment to want to strike out for these underserved places?
3: (laughs) Uh, I don't know.
1: well, let me ask Dr. Indig, um, you're now, the subspecialty that you're describing in gender affirming care, as you look out on the national landscape, um, this has become, you know, roughly half the country is going to be foreclosed to you as, I mean, in terms of the number of states that are over 500 laws have been passed in the last five months or so, uh, in some way limiting gender affirming care. So um what do you where do you imagine you can do your work and how will you be able to serve the people who are beyond the reach of these states where it is, you know, supported?
3: Yeah. I think that's a, a really challenging question because um my mentors in very progressive liberal institutions and cities have been dealing with death threats and doxing and um, enough to the point where some of them have had to hire full-time security to protect them. And this is in major metropolitan, pretty progressive areas. And so I think unfortunately with the language that is being, the language that we see around the country and the misinformation out there is is limiting us to such a point where I'm asked on a like monthly basis are you sure you still want to do this because the bar is pretty low for where it's safe to practice um this kind of specialty and I think this is something that our country is going to be struggling with for the next decade or so and I'm interested to see how that impacts my future career, but I don't really know what the answer for that would be. Because with all the vitriol and misinformation we have there, people are feeling like their hands are tied and practicing in places where they do have the protection. And I can only imagine how providers should practice outside of that protection, how they're feeling and the big questions they have to answer on a daily basis.
1: Hmm.
3: I I have tremendous amount of respect for them and I, I don't know how we're gonna reconcile that.
1: Well, let me ask you the question I asked Dr. McShane, what gives you the courage and commitment to want to forge ahead in an area where your colleagues are being threatened, physically threatened?
3: I think watching them and watching their bravery and watching them use that fear as a motivating factor and seeing them rally and use all these um, instances and despite all that, keep pushing on and still saying, no, I will treat a, a population that needs me um, and just hyper focus on their jobs and trying to let the uh, hate not impact them. I think seeing my mentors go through that is what keeps me on the path.
1: Well. I, at the risk of keeping all of your patients waiting any longer, I'm going to let the three of you go. And thanks to all three of you, Dr. Mackenzie Delzer, Dr. Janendi Indig, and Dr. Sarah McShane for joining us on the Vermont Conversation.
3: Thank Thank you for having us.
1: We turn now to Dr. Lauren McAfee, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Complex Family Planning at the University of Vermont Larner College of Medicine and the UVM Medical Center. She has been a frequent expert witness on abortion rights in the Vermont State House and an outspoken supporter of Vermont's Reproductive Liberty Amendment, which enshrines reproductive autonomy in the Vermont Constitution. Dr. Lauren McAfee, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. I want to just get your response. I know you were sitting in the room as your three residents. We're talking about their futures. They are young physicians, you know, considering the world that awaits them. What are some of your thoughts on hearing them?
0: I continue to be so inspired, I have to say, by the younger generations, both the medical students and our residents in terms of their optimism, enthusiasm, and desire to make the world a better place through medicine, through advocacy, through whatever avenue they can find. Um, And I find that really inspiring and really um, transformative in terms of helping me to maintain my enthusiasm and ability to continue to power forward. Um, I think burnout is real across the healthcare um, domains. And I think that having these learners and trainees who come in and have that enthusiasm That bravery, that courage to be able to consider going to places, you know, in the rural South or where have you, um, just continues to really keep me so appreciative um, for that motivation and that inspiration that they continue to provide and push me to continue to do more and and be the best I can be um, at providing the support and care for my trainees and my patients.
1: You are seeing colleagues from around the country in the field of OBGYN and LGBTQIA health care um, fleeing their practice areas because of the criminalization of care. First, as you listen to these young physicians, are you worried about them?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we have very frank discussions um, with our residents. And as they are here for four years, we get to know them very well. And that's one of the things I really love about our program is having such a small group of residents that I work with very closely for four years means I get to know them and means that in between surgical cases or deliveries on labor and delivery or clinic patients, that we can have some of those frank conversations and be talking about their plans for the future, ways that they can make themselves um, as safe as possible, ways they can support themselves in the future um, and help them to avoid some of the potential pitfalls that either we suffered or have some tools to help minimize um, potential security risks or um, practice risks or the like that might come up um, as they move forward. And so we do try and provide some of that guidance and counseling um, as well as they go forward.
1: Part of what we're talking about here are these, the the expanding maternity care deserts. And um, let's just take an opportunity to explain what does that mean and what does that look like?
0: Sure. So we're seeing increasingly numbers of towns, communities, counties that are losing their obstetrical care providers. And that could be midwives and um, obstetricians um, and potentially hospitals that provided obstetrical services. Um, and as a result, patients then no longer have those services close to home and have to travel to access health care. Um, and we're seeing this very frequently, I will say, at the University of Vermont Medical Center and across our health network. Um, we are seeing patients that are traveling one to three hours for routine prenatal care um, or for ultrasounds, and then sometimes even for subspecialty care. But much of that is for basic kind of routine obstetrical care because they don't have options closer to home. um, Or the hospitals that may be closer to home for them, their services have been ended as a result of um, their maternity care units being closed.
1: Talk about where that's happening within the University of Vermont network or just here in the Northeast. I think people are used to thinking this, this happens somewhere far away, but it's happening right here.
0: Yeah. So in upstate New York, um, Alice Hyde Medical Center, which is part of the um, health network now, um, but prior to them fully joining, um, their maternal unit closed. um, And so that meant that all patients then needed to primarily go to Plattsburgh to um, the the Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital, CBPH. Um, We're seeing other smaller hospitals not associated with the University of Vermont Health Network um, in the Vermont area. So Springfield Hospital is an example, um, where they're upstate unit has closed Um, and then there have been times where some of our other smaller hospitals have been on divert because they didn't have um, their one obstetrician maybe was on vacation or got stuck in a snowstorm or something happened and they didn't have the backup support that they needed and so patients had to be transferred to central Vermont medical center center excuse me um, transferred to us transferred to Dartmouth whatever the case may be Um, and so we're seeing that not infrequently on a number of different levels uh, that patients are needing to travel farther um, for basic health care and uh, reproductive health services.
1: Is it worse now uh, in this respect with having to travel, not having OBGYNs nearby?
0: It certainly feels like it's getting harder and more common. Yes. And I think as we come out of the pandemic, we are seeing more patients who may be put off healthcare during the course of the pandemic um, or who didn't have access because of the long travel times or challenges at, 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 seeking care, we're seeing long wait times in our clinics, getting patients in, um, and we are seeing higher acuity and higher needs from patients, not only related to their medical needs, but potentially also related to some other social supports, transportation, childcare, care, um, and the like that just makes it even more challenging for them to access the services they need.
1: Talk about the, the some of the inequities in reproductive health care and abortion care. Um, We know that uh, Black and Native American women experience pregnancy-related deaths at rates three and two times that of white women, respectively. What accounts for that?
0: It's a great question. And I wish I had all the answers to you for you. Um, But I think it's very multifactorial. So I definitely think some of this is contributed to just simply based on socioeconomic status and poverty. Um, Living in uh, lower socioeconomic status levels may mean that you don't have access to Um, safe water, safe housing, safe food, um, that you don't have access to all of the preventative healthcare services that you might normally be able to access. Um, We know that there is definitely some discrepancy in terms of how healthcare providers um, are able to screen and assess for patients based on their um, race and ethnicity that I think a lot of us are trying to work on addressing those implicit biases um, that may exist. We also know that there are different risk factors that may be um, more common in certain uh, race and ethnic groups, um, which may contribute to uh, some of the worsening morbidity and mortality that we see in those levels. But I definitely think that there are a number of factors at play, um, and it is continuing to be a systems-level issue that we need to address in terms of making sure that our providers have the training they need to best care for the patients and that our patients have access to not not only all the medical services, but also the social support services to enable them to actually access the care uh, that we're recommending for
1: them. What is, what are you, well, you doing, your institution, UVM Medical Center, to address inequities like this? What can be done?
0: Yeah. So we are really fortunate to have access to a very kind of broad team-based approach to our medical care. So we have physicians, midwives, nurses, and medical assistants in our clinic setting, but we also use and rely on our community health team, social workers very heavily um, and have them help us to identify um, a whole host of, you know, different opportunities and resources that might be available, be it accessing better insurance coverage, housing and childcare support, um, and other resources that might be available. We also, through, Um, some grant funding, our um, midwifery program brought in a volunteer doula program. um, And that was another huge, I think, impact that can really help as another level of advocacy um, for patients who come into labor and delivery. Uh, Doula services are not routinely covered by all insurance programs, and they can be expensive. Um, And so by having volunteer doulas, we're eliminating the cost factor that comes into play. Um, And they're another member of our healthcare team that can provide one-on-one support to the patient, in addition to the nurses, the midwives, the doctors, the, uh, you know, other members of the healthcare team to help them navigate, in this case, labor um, and kind of walk through those processes and make sure that there's another voice um, to advocate for them and and help guide them in their path.
1: What is the role for midwives uh, in, particularly as we look at the shortages uh, and talk about where midwives fit into the picture here in Vermont?
0: Yeah, so we are so fortunate here, and I actually feel credit this program our training program for physicians here as being um, very team-centered and very centered around um, advanced practice providers, providing care services, and training to our physician learners. Um, so we work not only with midwives, but also um, physician assistants and nurse practitioners to provide training and, and guidance to our to our trainees, which I think is really critical. Our midwives are a huge component of our obstetric practice here at the medical center. And we are so fortunate to have such a longstanding, strong collaborative practice here. Um, I think that midwives are a very important component to um, reducing maternal mortality and morbidity and and hopefully improving maternity care deserts um, because they uh, come with a different approach, relatively speaking, um, but their training programs are slightly less rigorous and time intensive um, than physicians training programs, Um, and we could benefit certainly from a model like the United Kingdom, which really does try to focus on midwives providing low-risk obstetrical services for the vast majority of the population and physicians kind of serving in a um, consultative role and um, taking care of high-risk pregnancies. So I think we are fortunate to have very strong midwifery programs across the state, and there are a number of examples of hospitals in our state that um, really do optimize their use of midwives um, with physician support and collaboration as needed um, to provide top notch, high quality, compassionate care um, to the patients of their community.
1: And I can say as the parent of a daughter who was born uh, with the UVM Midwifery Service, Yes, it's really great. <laughs>
0: yeah, I am so grateful for them, and so grateful that our resident physicians and medical students learn from them and learn their approach. You know, learn their approach to care and um, their compassion and empathy and drive. Um, I think is just unparalleled in many ways in medicine. So yeah, I feel very fortunate to have them as team members.
1: I want to ask about your the advocacy that you have been involved in. You have been a, a very public advocate and uh, for. Proposition five and other of the, you know, reproductive health shield laws and such. Um, What has led you to take this kind of public stand? Uh, You know, apropos of the questions I was asking some of the physicians, you didn't go to medical school to necessarily be an advocate or activist. Um, Why have you taken that role on?
0: Sure, so, I will start with my training just a little bit to highlight that. So, like the residents that spoke earlier, I did four years of undergrad, um, four years of medical school, four years of residency. And then, if that wasn't enough, I added on a two year fellowship in complex family planning. Um, and so, that is a subspecialty of OBGYN that focuses on um, complex contraception, miscarriage, and abortion care. And so, that focuses not only on the clinical aspects of that, but as you've mentioned and as has come up, so much of the work that we do, especially in, in reproductive health care and abortion care, um, is driven by politics these days. And the role of advocacy and legislative interference is becoming more and more critical in the, in the role that we can play. I think, too, that women who are seeking abortion care um, oftentimes are doing so you know, out of a place of need, obviously, and an unplanned event and have so many life circumstances that are going against them that they aren't able to advocate for themselves apart from barely being able to seek the services they need. And so I think as you heard from the residents earlier, you know, we then have that opportunity to be their voice. We have, we see not just one person, but we see many women in their shoes who are struggling to access healthcare services and across the spectrum of different services that they may be seeking. And so they may not have the capacity or ability to step up and advocate for themselves. And so we then as the providers can step up and say, I have seen 10, 20, 30, 100, 200 patients that have come to me with this concern and I can be their voice and I can can do that and bring that to our legislators um, in a way that makes, the patients feel more heard and otherwise they wouldn't have a voice at the table.
1: You described, you just skimmed over very quickly, but I'm going to back up and do the math, your training, four years undergraduate, four years medical school, four years residency and two years in subspecialty training, Yep. 14 years of post-secondary education to do the work that you do. We are seeing around the country, Physicians like yourself being lectured by lawmakers and being told What kind of medicine they need to practice? um, By you know people who have no training whatsoever What does that feel like to you seeing your colleagues in the hot seat? having to basically practice medicine that is not based in evidence or best practices?
0: Um, obviously it's infuriating. <laughs> Um, is probably the best word, right? Um, And I think some of that anger is really what drives a lot of us to continue to do the work that we do to fight for the patients on the ground who we are sitting with in a, you know, exam room and hearing their stories um, and then feel it's our responsibility to bring our stories and our training to our legislators to make sure that they understand the direct impact that they're having on their constituents and the citizens of their district region, state, whatever the case may be. Um, And I have tried to really um, recognize my role and think about that and and keep that at heart and keep my patients' needs at heart, to be perfectly honest, when I'm bringing that to the legislators. Because the reality is that abortion care, even miscarriage care and early pregnancy is not something that is often talked about in kind of our social structure and publicly. And so as a result, there's a lot of taboo around it. There's a lot of stigma around it. And so a lot of legislators you know, male or female don't necessarily have a lot of perspective or understanding of what folks are going through because there isn't a widespread discussion of it happening kind of in our communities. And so I see that then as our opportunity to speak up for the patients that we're seeing and be able to be that voice for them um, and provide the education and guidance so that they can understand Um, Some of the misinformation, a lot of the misinformation that's out there and help to try and guide them and educate and inform them. I feel so fortunate in Vermont because I do really feel like our legislators have the right intentions and are curious enough to try and seek out the information from the right experts who can give them the information to help them craft the right laws and policies that will do right by Vermonters
1: we are living in a, uh, I guess you could call it a post-truth era where people sort of make up their own truth and they decide that you know when it comes to covid they will seek out veterinary drugs to treat themselves and um and on and on have you encountered as a physician people coming in with you know things they heard on the internet that have no basis in reality and and you know arguing with you about the care that you're prescribing
0: Absolutely. And I think this is where, you know, we are we are used to that to some extent um, in medicine. A lot of what we do, especially in obstetrics, is Our evidence based practice, and we do the best we can with evidence we have, but we don't always have the best evidence. And so we have um, a lot of tools and a lot of opportunities to use shared decision making and really try to elicit the patient's values and education and make sure that we're understanding what their goals and priorities are, what information they're coming to the table with. And then we can try and provide you know, our information and our best practices that we have um, to try and provide guidance and come to some decision around next steps and where they're going to be. Our goal is never to be contentious or, um, you know, kind of paternalistic and tell them what to do. Um, But our goal is to help guide them down the path of health and wellness in whatever capacity that may be. And sometimes their views and, and. Um, Choices may very well differ from what we're recommending or what we might do, Um, but that's the reality of medicine, I think, these days. And I think we need to be open to the fact that patients are going to come to us with different values and perceptions and goals of what they want out of their care. Um, And our job and responsibility is to make sure they have the information they need to make the decision that's right for them and that we can dispel any myths or misinformation that they may have heard, provide them with the highest evidence and guidance and help them walk down that path together
1: have you received personally any backlash from the advocacy or just the work that you do i have what does that look like
0: um usually it's uh anonymous letters or cards um, in the mail to my clinic, um, oftentimes with references that I'm being prayed for or that I'm going to um, hell or some other kind of religious references. Um, and I you know, have accepted it as part of the work that I do and recognize that. And it was certainly a consideration when I Before I became, you know, before I kind of put my face out there and did a lot of advocacy and legislative work to have that discussion and conversation with my family around what will this look like for us? What conversations do we need to have? Is safety an issue? Um, I'm fortunate to have a very supportive, you know, institution and um, our um, academic leadership, media teams, et cetera, are all very supportive of the work that I do and continuing to be an advocate, um, both from the health network and state level. Um, But I, you know, there's certainly still that reality that we live in a small area and and violence is real. And we know that threats against healthcare providers um, have increased across the board, regardless of reproductive health or not. And so I think we're all, you know, aware of that and try to protect ourselves as best we can, while still recognizing that um, we need to be advocates for our patients. And um, I, you know, think that nobody will deny the fact that patients are going to die and suffer significant consequences as a result of all of the legislation that's being passed to, you know, restrict their access to comprehensive reproductive health care. And so you know, the reality is that there is um, violence everywhere in different forms and I think we have to be um, willing to speak up, stand up and fight for what's right.
1: Have you been threatened with violence as part of this backlash?
0: Um, Not directly, just the um, letters that I get, which sometimes are um, more vitriolic than others.
1: Has Vermont felt any of the ripple effects of the healthcare bans and restrictions elsewhere in the country? Are we seeing more people seeking abortion care here or transgender healthcare here? Anything that's noticeable as of now?
0: Yeah, so we've always seen patients that have crossed state lines to come into Vermont for health care and specifically abortion care or transgender care. Um, Specifically, and and oftentimes that's geographically located, right? If a patient lives just across the border in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, New York, what have you, um, it may actually be geographically closer for them to access a clinic in Vermont. And so sometimes there's just the natural, um, you know, uh, as the crow flies, distance is closer. Um, We also have patients that might. Might be doing school here or have family or friends here, um, and we have folks who may be serving overseas and military or other things where they will come back to Vermont if this is their home um, to access such services. Um, we have seen a slight increase, I believe, in our numbers. I apologize, I don't have the numbers offhand um, in terms of patients who are seeking care outside of our state, but we we didn't anticipate a huge influx, mostly just because um, there are states around us, Massachusetts and, and New York primarily, um, that are easier and cheaper to get to and have much higher volume clinics um, and more centrally located clinics that are able to um, up, you, you know um, kind of take up that additional burden. For patients that are looking to um, access services,
1: what is your biggest concern right now as you look at the current national climate and that national map, where one state after another is, uh, you know, turning some different shade on a on a map showing where you can no longer get uh, healthcare freely?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really disheartening, and what it's so hard for me to see that. There are huge disparities in access to healthcare solely based on the zip code where you live. And that just seems so, you know, just so unfair um, and really hard as a healthcare provider who wants to provide evidence based, compassionate healthcare. And you heard from my residents similarly like, we want to provide to the vulnerable, to the people who need us. And yet we can't and we can't provide services that are needed because of legislative interference and that legislative interference is coming from a place of kind of extremism that is not supported by the public you know, general feelings around abortion. Most, you know, the the majority of the public supports at some access to abortion care. Um, And so I think this disconnect between our elected officials and the laws they're passing and what their constituents actually want and need um, is really disheartening and has been really hard. But I think that we all are trying to do everything we can, be it in a safe state like Vermont, to be a beacon of light and hope for other states and to serve as, as an example of of... Here's legislation that you can pass to provide supports. Here's advocacy opportunities. Here are places where patients can go and access care. Um, and then also to support my colleagues who are in states where they can't provide, you know, all of the services that they've been trained to provide, um, but make sure that they still are able to do some extent of the work that they want to be doing within the confines of the law and continue to advocate and bring those stories to their legislators so that they can understand that they're having down effects that are negatively impacting the citizens that they were elected to serve.
1: Well, Dr. Lauren McAfee, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Dr. Lauren McAfee is the Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Complex Family Planning at the University of Vermont Larner College of Medicine and the UVM Medical Center.